Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news. Uh, as you can see, I have a kind of screwy setup. I'm not in my studio. I'm out visiting with Dan Ellsberg in California, uh, but uh, I'll do my best to make this work. Uh, I'll be back in just a few seconds. We're going to talk to a Ukrainian member of the socialist left in Ukraine about the current situation and ask him some of the questions people have been asking here in North America and, and around the world. Be back in just a few seconds. The considerations uh, when one talks about the Russian invasion of Ukraine are, are, are different. If you're in Ukraine and you're dealing with an, an aggressive invader, or you're in North America, where you're facing, or the United States in particular, where you're facing the center of the empire, uh, which has its finger on everything, although perhaps not as much as, or in control of as much as they would like to be, or as some of the American left uh, and others think they are. Uh, that, but we're gonna get to that in just a bit. Uh, but first we're gonna talk with our guest about what the conditions are now in Ukraine, and then we'll get into some of the other questions. So now joining us from Western Ukraine, I'm not gonna say what city it is, uh, out of his own uh, safety concerns, is Denis Pilash. He's a political scientist, a historian, a translator. He's an activist of the Ukrainian Democratic Socialist Organization, the Social Movement, a member of the Commons, a journal of social criticism. He's on the editorial board. And he's co-author of the book, Leva Europa, the Left Europe. Thanks very much for joining us, Dennis. Thank you for inviting. So uh, you're in Western Ukraine, which you've told me is you know, relatively safer than certainly most of the rest of Ukraine. Uh, but first of all, what, what's it like for you? What, what are you doing day to day? And then tell us a little bit about what you know of uh, what's happening in the rest of the country. Now we are deeply into into the war, and it has affected tens of millions of lives. So thousands of civilians uh, have been killed, and millions have had to relocate. Uh, many of them have already crossed the border with the Poland, Slovak Republic, Hungary, Moldova, Romania, and so on. Uh, but many, many more millions are uh, relocating inside Ukraine to safer places. And actually, um, I would say that now we have uh, an existential horror uh, when you when you are thinking about the plight of those people who uh, are now under the shelling and the airstrikes in uh, Kyiv, in Kharkiv, in uh, smaller cities, towns and villages in the eastern, northern and southern parts of Ukraine. So uh, actually, many people, they couldn't leave their homes, they couldn't leave their elder uh, relatives, they couldn't leave their um, relatives with disabilities, they couldn't leave their pets. And uh, actually, uh, in some places, the situation is really dire. So uh, some of the, the towns have been destroyed almost completely, uh, like Volnavaha, in Donbass and Shastya, and um, uh, some of Kiev suburbs, like Irpin, Hastomel, and Bucha. Um, the city of Mariupol is now under, is besieged, and there is uh, um, 
certain humanitarian disasters there, and there are estimates that thousands of civilians uh, probably um, have have perished in in in, in this uh, catastrophe. So um, as as for me, the first days were uh, really horrific, really terrible when you tried just to track where where your friends are and whether all of them are in safety. Uh, and then uh, you are starting to get uh, some news that some some someone whom you used to know is killed. Uh, for instance, an anarchist guy in Kharkiv and a physicist near Kiev. Um, so now I am in in this uh, one of the western cities of Ukraine, where, where we have uh, relatively uh, less um, uh, air. Um, alerts and uh, um, you you don't live in a constant fear of being attacked and bombed uh, but you you still feel um, there is a war going on and you have thousands of refugees uh, fleeing to the west and uh, also you have an influx of humanitarian aid coming bring uh, through through the city so uh, now I'm trying to volunteer at the local university to to help transport and uh, disseminate this uh, aid for the refugees, for the relocated persons, for the um, for the people uh, near the front line, and also to the people who uh, um, in, in one way or another uh, are trying to resist. Um, so actually we had uh, more than hundreds, hundreds of thousands of people who enlisted in this uh, uh, voluntary territorial self-defense units and you had uh, you have actually millions of essential workers and uh, volunteers like humanitarian volunteers people who are trying to aid others who um, try to escape uh, and who try just to uh, just to survive um, and actually we we have to say a, a huge a huge respect who, uh, especially for the healthcare workers who are um, working relentlessly to save human lives and for the um, uh, transportation workers. Um, actually, again, they are also risking their lives. Some of them have been killed, but uh, for instance, the employees of uh, the state-run railroad companies, they, they managed to relocate, to evacuate uh, an enormous uh, number of people. And uh, so, they are one of the, the biggest heroes of this uh, situation um, and again you have like lots and lots of these people who are uh, working class people who are usually not so uh, so visible as uh, the frontline um, uh, people essential for the uh, resistance and for the survival but uh, they are the ones who who keep the things running so what 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 is the role of the left, the workers' movement, trade unions? What role are they playing in the context of, of this invasion? And, and, and also, what about this law that was just passed by the Ukrainian government uh, outlawing uh, various parties, including some left socialist parties? And, and was your party affected at all? Mm, I would start probably with, uh, with the general context. So, um, like in Ukraine, uh, like like almost everywhere in Eastern and Central Europe, the so-called post-socialist uh, states, um, 
well, you have um, a rather uh, poor situation for the, the left, the progressive forces and the labor movement. Uh, lots of uh, uh, things that are paying into this situation, like uh, uh, starting with this uh, really uh, uh, wild capitalism that was unleashed in the 90s and uh, the, the market reforms that uh, led to um, impoverishment of people and uh, to dismantling um, social safety nets. Uh, but also, of course, there is a, a part of this comes from the discreditation of the uh, leftist and socialist and communist ideas by um, the experience of Stalinism uh, and um, like the hunger, the repressions and so on. Uh, so obviously it's not, not quite a, um, not, not something that is boosting so much a progressive alternative here. So uh, actually in, in Central and Eastern Europe, you have just several uh, maybe countries where uh, the new left parties have been prominent, like uh, Levica in Slovenia or Razum in Poland. But in uh, the rest of these places, usually you have beautiful um, uh, conditions for the democratic left. So this was the situation for Ukraine as well. Uh, and well, our our group called Socialny Ruch, the social movement, it was a um, uh, leftist organization that was organized to bring together people from trade unions, from uh, student movement, from feminist movement, from ecological movement, from other social movements, and to try to articulate a um, uh, democratic socialist agenda, um, an anti-capitalist agenda, um, to constitute like a real grassroots uh, political subject that would voice for the working class people. Um, and uh, we felt the necessity for this after we experienced in Ukraine, there was a number of uh, mass protests, um, like usually called Maidans, um, due to like the, the biggest um, square in Kyiv. Um, and uh, well, actually, they they were joined. They, they were really a popular movements joined by uh, a huge number of people. But uh, these people were driven by the same problems that are usually um, causing um, people to protest throughout the world. So uh, starting with poverty, inequality. Uh, lack of political representation, police brutality, and so on. But every time, um, the only result was probably some change of the um, uh, top politicians, uh, some probably change of geopolitical orientations, but never the change of the system. That is the system of peripheral oligarchic capitalism um, that flourishes in Ukraine and elsewhere in, in our region. Um, uh, so we felt that we need to uh, propose this kind of alternative and to challenge the um, this oligarchic system that is actually all, all, all mainstream political parties are rooted in, in this um, oligarchic financial and industrial groups, and they are representing like them. So um, that was the, the reason why our group then called the, the left operations and the Assembly for Social Revolution, and ultimately we created this NGO social movement with a perspective to become a, a political party. 
but like in Ukraine, we have probably more than 200, maybe 300 uh, registered political parties, but they are no more than some kind of uh, electoral uh, vehicles that are sometimes bought by uh, some capitalist uh, actors and then uh, uh, res reselled after the, the elections. So they lack any uh, um, uh, uh, any any kind of uh, ideology and uh, philosophy and so on. Uh, and they don't really represent some social groups. Besides, of course, uh, the capital that, that uh, runs them. So um, this this was uh, uh, the prerequisites for for the establishment of our group, and we we are trying to now in these conditions we are trying to do the best to probably um, both both help the people in need uh, and. Uh, um, also to prevent some cuts of um, uh, social and labor rights. Of course, in any any situation, any uh, any government um, in this uh, uh, operating in this neoliberal shock doctrine, they um, will uh, grab the opportunity to um, somehow um, uh, cut the, the the rights for the uh, majority, especially the social and economic rights, and uh, somehow to benefit the, the ruling class. So uh, it was again the same now Now here. We have some neoliberal members of parliament who tried to, and actually still a law um, that is still awaiting for the signature by president. And so we are calling uh, to it, a law that um, uh, it makes easier to sack uh, workers. And it's quite cynical in the situation when workers are the backbone of the Ukrainian resistance today. Um, so again, they are thinking in this uh, really, uh, of course, uh, categories of uh, what's what's good for for the business, not what's what's good for for the workers. So uh, then we have the situation with um, the trade unions in Ukraine. Again, it's. Um, uh, like elsewhere in the region, it's also a bit uh, complicated. So we we have two big uh, um, uh, union entities. So the Federation of Trade Unions of Ukraine and the Confederation of Free Trade Unions of Ukraine. First one uh, is a continuation of the official um, uh, pro-governmental old Soviet unions. Uh, and um, many cases it was perceived as really an ally of the management and uh, something that's uh, not representing the, um, its membership at all. Uh, the second one uh, emerged uh, from the big miners movement uh, in the end of the 80s. So it was uh, one of these reasons for the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, when the, the workers were protesting actually due to um, they had economic demands and they felt that the system that calls uh, itself um, all working class is actually run by bureaucracy, not by, by, uh, by the people. Um, so they emerged as independent unions uh, and they are um, smaller. But now we had the situation when uh, in both these entities, uh, you, you could find both uh, some bureaucrats um, aligning with management at the same 
time you can see like really militant uh, branches uh, um, and um, in our our organization we have organizers and people who are active in 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 both this federation and confederation the people who work with construction workers with uh, crane workers with uh, miners this independent miners union especially in the city of krivirich that's uh, uh, kind of industrial heart of Ukraine is in the center of Ukraine. It's extremely long city uh, uh, along uh, ore mines and ore refineries. Um, interestingly enough, it's also the, the birthplace of the current president Zelensky. Uh, so, um, uh, and um, all, many of these people are now involved in all kinds of activities uh both linked to some kind many 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 actually workers they enlisted for the the military resistance but uh many are uh doing their their jobs to to keep the things going uh and um well uh now uh again we try to gain more international attention and solidarity for the especially for the of Ukrainian workers in the situation of war and to uh, also find international solidarity for uh, the demands that would benefit the uh, working class in Ukraine, like um, uh, starting from uh, the obvious one uh, that we need to, to stop the war and to withdraw uh, all uh, Russian forces from from Ukrainian um, uh, territory, uh, uh, and continuing with the specific ones that uh, are needed to um, recover Ukraine after after this ravaging war. So uh, we need to uh, cancel the um, Ukrainian external debt and uh, get the country out of this vicious circle of debt of the IMF austerity policies and so on. We need to, um, again, probably to confiscate um, as much assets and property and uh, of oligarchs, I think, both Russian and Ukrainian. Because again, this, this war, it, it has shown that uh, the, the class war uh, has no, no ending and no truth, even in, in situation when you have um, like an international war. Uh, you could see the Ukrainian oligarchs who were, who were fleeing from the country uh, prior to the invasion uh, and who tried to, uh, well, to, to, to rob the people uh, in a way um, to make them pay for, for the damage caused by the war. Uh, and of course, you have the, the Russian ruling class that um, uh, again was robbing its own people, other people throughout the post-Soviet space, and uh, who were uh, concentrating their enormous wealth and uh, doing it off with uh, tax havens, and then um, buying uh, property in in London and the Netherlands and Switzerland and uh, um, like having um, being actually uh, um, uh, an organic part of the global ruling elite. Of course, uh, Ukrainian and Russian oligarchs are like the same that any other capitalists. So they, they do the same thing and they are uh, the same the same way criminal uh so uh in in our case they are uh, usually also 
criminal in direct sense because it was uh, how this uh, primitive accumulation of capital in the 90s um, was conducted so with with criminal activities uh, literally yeah so uh, and to turn all this uh, this money was a reconstruction of the economy of the infrastructure for rebuilding the, the, um, the apartments and the, uh, providing uh, help for the people who were uh, on out by this war. So uh, probably we'll also like go back to, to this uh, specific demands, but I will also comment on the, on the question about this uh, decree uh, um, it was banning a dozen of political parties. So, yeah, uh, it it, um, it it is uh, it was about temporary, uh, uh, like stopping of of the activity of uh, several political parties that are deemed as pro-Russian. So, all of them are uh, like the biggest. Uh, pro-Russian parties. One of them is one of the main oligarchic parties in Ukraine. Uh, another one is um, a personalist party of a um, YouTube blogger who, like many YouTube bloggers uh, in this part of the world, uh, really made his name with lots of hate speech and putting uh, people against each other. Uh, but really, there is also a number of parties that um, have the word socialist uh, or something like that in, in their names. Um, and uh, well, the majority of them don't even exist actually. So they are some virtual entities. For instance, uh, once, um, once well known and once, um, uh, well, it, it was really respected, the Socialist Party of Ukraine, it, it um, uh, the 90s, it emerged as some kind of hope for the democratic left here, and uh, it was a principled opposition against the uh, regime of uh, President Kuchma, who was the architect of this Ukrainian oligarchic capitalism, and the Socialist Party was um, uh, one of the main forces behind the uh, protest against it. Uh, but then it started to sell off to different groups of um, local bourgeoisie, either pro-Western or pro-Russian. And uh, so it became, became very discredited. And at some point, it was hijacked by uh, very strange people. Uh, the the last, last of them was, a, um, uh, it's a quite curious case, a, a guy who, who started as a far-right activist. Uh, and he was an aide and advisor to uh, Minister Avakov, the Minister of Interior, who was, um, uh, again, deemed to be the patron of the Ukrainian far right. And um, like this very brutish guy um, from the police, who was uh, notorious for his remarks against, um, I don't know, separatists and against, uh, he was uh, promising to, to destroy, um, kill drug addicts and so on uh, with his rhetorics, yes. Um, and then at some point he become a, one of the most pro-Russian and pro-Putin uh, member of parliament. Uh, and um, now, now he is uh, like outside the country and uh, uh, leading for the Russian invasion. So this, this guy, he actually, with the support of the Minister of Interior, he actually hijacked uh, 
uh, the party and um, uh, throughout uh, all, all, all the remaining real activists from there. So it's really, um, uh, you can say that yeah, these parties weren't actually really left. For instance, like the Progressive Socialist Party of Ukraine, it was more about being some kind of right-wing populist. It was deeply into some conspiracy theories about how the, uh, I don't know, um, some, some uh, plots against the Orthodox Christian civilization and, and our values and so on. Uh, but they were, were of no significance uh, and they are, they aren't uh, somehow being some some uh, uh, big obstacles for the uh, I know for the existence of Ukraine. So I think that this uh, decision it was not just uh, like when these facts unnecessary and stupid, uh, uh, but it was also setting a, a dangerous and democratic precedent when um, some some kind of activity of Political parties and uh, organizations is uh, um, uh, stopped not by the decision of the court due to some uh, uh, due process, but uh, by uh, un like um, uh, unilateral decision by the central central authority. So uh, again, uh, we can say that uh, we have no sympathy towards its parties and they are not, not representing the real left at all. Uh, but um, uh, the, the way they were outlawed, uh, at least for, for the time of war, as it was declared, um, is worrying because it can be used, of course, against uh, any other um, uh, political group. Uh, just need to point at them and say that they are somehow uh, unpatriotic. So let's let's deal with sort of the main argument that uh, Putin has been giving for why this invasion was necessary. And then there's certain sections of the left uh, in the United States and I guess other places that uh, have some sympathy for, for this argument. Um, and, and essentially that the Ukrainian government since 2014 uh, has been launching attacks on the uh, Russian-speaking people in uh, Donbass, and that is, that there was a sort of progressive character to some extent of the uh, forces that emerged in Donbass and wanted uh, eventually declared independence, um, and that over the last uh, you know years since 2014, as many as eight, ten thousand people may have been killed by. Uh, the Ukrainian government forces in Donbas, and that for Russia to defend the people of Donbas, which Putin says is his, at least his main mission, I believe, uh, it was necessary not just to uh, protect the people of Donbas by having 150,000 troops on the border, but they had to actually, quote, demilitarize Ukraine. Um, now, I've talked to some friends in the Russian left, who apparently are also split on this question. And there's a section of the Russian left that sympathizes with this need to defend Donbass. Uh, uh, certainly in the earlier years, uh, some, some members of the Russian left even volunteered to go defend and fight in Donbass. 
And there was a feeling uh, of apprehension leading up to this recent uh, conflict that the Ukrainian government was planning some kind of assault on Donbass. So what's your, there's a lot of questions all in there, I know. So break it down, but let me just start with this. Um, is, it's, is it not true that thousands of people were killed uh, by Ukrainian forces in Donbass? And then two, you know, was there a reason to believe this massive military buildup over the last year, if the, assuming that's correct, because I don't know exactly who to believe about anything these days, uh, but that the Americans and NATO fort countries had put a lot of weaponry into Ukraine, which created a legitimate sense, they argue, the Russians and, and some of the left, that they were in, in fear of an imminent attack on Donbass. So what, what's your take on this? First of all, I would say that uh, almost all words of Putin are a cynical lie. Because uh, actually, uh, even if we start with uh, war in Donbass, uh, there were like for, like, uh, around 14,000 people killed. They are people killed from all sides. And actually, uh, if we break down uh, who killed uh, so we can find that, first of all, the number of military casualties is bigger than the civilian ones. And then that, uh, again, this uh, view that it was just like Ukrainian army unilaterally um, shelling the cities of Donbas, it's again not true because it was uh, done by both sides. And actually, uh, just just a, a part of, of, of these people were killed by by um, the Ukrainian forces while uh, still you will have the, um, a, a big part uh, on like responsibility of, of uh, Russia and its proxies. So actually uh, there was a lot, lot of mythology and I would say some kind of romantizing what's happening in the Donbass. Uh, and um, what, was, uh, what was particularly uh, uh, striking is that uh, uh, I would say that Kremlin didn't even try hard to, to, to in itself as some kind of anti-fascist force, but it was uh, bought so easily uh, by uh, large sections on the left. Uh, because, again, if we speak about the nature of um, Putin's uh, uh, regime in Russia, it's a conservative uh, right-wing uh, authoritarian regime that is um, uh, ser uh, serving the interests of this nexus of what's the Russian ruling class. It's a nexus of uh, the oligarchs, uh, the top uh, siloviki, that are like the people from the security services and so on, um, and uh, in general, bureaucrat bourgeoisie. So all, all this together, it constitutes uh, the Russian uh, ruling elite. And uh, uh, while Russia was uh, and is not just an authoritarian and non-democratic state, increasingly authoritarian, uh, especially in after after this invasion started, they passed a, a number of legislation that is really outlawing even calling this war. Uh, um, you you can get uh, fined and then you can get imprisoned for for uh, long long years for 
not calling it a special military operation and so on. But it's, uh, it was also like deeply anti-social. It conducted the neoliberal reforms uh, like from um, monetization of uh, some benefits to education reform and to pension reform even faster than many of the countries that are seen as more neoliberal in Eastern Europe, uh, definitely faster than, than in Ukraine. So um, again, there, there is nothing progressive and nothing socialist in, in Russia. And uh, the modern Russia is, uh, it was really, um, it became a, a beacon for the far right in Europe. I would say that the majority of European far right, they were really um, modeling like after this uh, uh, Putin system that is the best um, in 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 Europe and possibly in the world. So he Russia was supported by, by the majority of uh, far right parties in Europe, from Marine Le Pen in France uh, to Chrysiavgi, uh, Golden Dawn in in Greece, and uh, first Jobbik and Fides in in Hungary. Uh, so. Really, you could say how much Putin uh, is an anti-fascist from even how he was uh, building up to, to this invasion and uh, his notorious war-mongering uh, war speeches when he was constantly attacking uh, the Russian Revolution of 1917, the Bolsheviks and Lenin for the mere existence of, of Ukraine as a separate republic and separate entity. And he was like clear his like continuing this uh, Tsarist, imperialist, uh, grand Russian um, chauvinist narratives. Um, and uh, he was meeting with so such prominent anti-fascists as uh, Jair Bolsonaro from Br Brazil and uh, um, Viktor Orban from Hungary just prior to the invasion. Uh, so actually, um, uh, nothing anti-fascist at all, but they were uh, extensively uh, using and trying to um, somehow um, accommodate uh, the, this legacy of the victory against uh, fascism and Nazism in the Second World War as something that is legitimizing um, uh, Russian like official propaganda. Uh, so again, uh, many many in the in the West and in general, like abroad, they, they tend to associate everything that is linked to the Soviet Union um, and to the victory in the Second World War just, just to Russia. So I, I have to remind that it was the Soviet Union that was a, a federation, um, at least nominally a federation of lots of republic and um, only a half of its uh, population was Russian. And if we speak about, for instance, 27 million uh, Soviet uh, citizens who died, who perished in the horrors of the Second World War. They were not just Russians, they were Ukrainians, Belarusians, Jews, Tatars, people of um, Caucasus, Siberia, and Central Asia. Uh, and again, in the Red Army, you had also a big proportion of, of these people. And from a quarter to a third of, of Red Army and of the Soviet casualties, were actually coming from the Soviet Ukraine. So it was, uh, uh, again, uh, a contribution of all the peoples of the Soviet Union, not just Russia, and Russia cannot just... Let's go back to Donbass for a second. Yes. I want to follow so, up on something. No, just a so, second. Yes. I want to ask you about something you said. 
If the do do not the at least a significant number of people in areas of Donbass, if they don't want to be part of Ukraine, mm -hmm. don't they have that right? Shouldn't the Ukrainian government, one, I, my understanding originally in 2014 and so on, the, the demand was a kind of federal system. Uh, later, there was the Minsk agreement for allowing autonomy. I mean, shouldn't the Ukrainian government have actually lived up to the Minsk agreement? Wouldn't that at least helped to avoid this situation? So again, to, to speak about the Donbas uh, conflict, it, 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 uh, it was a complexity on several levels. So uh, yes, you had like a popular uh, sentiment uh, behind the anti-Maidan local movement in uh, 2014. Uh, and it was really a tragedy that the people who were protesting in say central and western Ukraine and people who were protesting in eastern part of Ukraine, they were actually driven by the same uh, problems, the same uh, demands, but they they were uh, given uh, like this op opposing agendas in terms of some kind of identity, language and so on. And this uh, um, made it uh, Possible to teach these people uh, against each other, though they uh, actually uh, a worker in in Kiev, uh, Donetsk, and Lviv, they have pretty uh, the same uh, grievances and pretty the same problem. So again, these uh, questions that were artificially uh, cracking the Ukrainian people, like the language, geopolitical orientation. Um, some, some others, they were used by the, the local and foreign politicians uh, for their own uh, sake. Uh, and this, this brought uh, um, this uh, uh, lack, lack of understanding between different regions of, of Ukraine. It, it was unfortunate tragedy. But at the other levels, you also had um, a, a play of local elites who tried to um, uh, local oligarchs who tried to preserve their grab, their control on, on, on these uh, regions. And you also had uh, some uh, intentions of Russia that was obviously that started this. Uh, they kicked, kicked, kicked uh, the conflict with uh, the annexation of Crimea uh, that was done in, um, well, uh, uh, one, one um, cannot argue that uh, well, you, 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 it's it's not like real um, uh, referendum when you have uh, armed people occupying the, the peninsula and uh, everything is done in a mess under the barrel of the gun. Even if uh, lots of people there were really eager to uh, switch to Russia, um, and again, it was also uh, ignoring the. Um, uh, what what the other groups in, in the local population, for instance, uh, the Crimean Tatars and other peoples who have been deported uh, in the Stalinist um, times, uh, how they felt about this annexation be, being annexed by Russia. But okay, now we, now we turn to the Do to Donbas. So uh, yes, you had uh, different uh, views in the local uh, population how to uh, live. Uh, Afterwards, and but again, it wasn't that uh, there was an uh, overwhelming uh, majority for breaking with Ukraine. 
instead you can even uh, check uh, how many people left left the region due to the war and how many of them uh, there were a lot of, uh, of them who went to russia and there were a lot of them who went to other regions of ukraine so uh, it was like a million and a half IDPs, internally displaced persons inside Ukraine. So again, uh, obviously these were people that were more comfortable with staying in Ukraine than go going to Russia, for instance. But in any, any case, neither the, um, the Zen authority, uh, that was this post-Maidan uh, Ukrainian authority, nor uh, those uh, like Russian and pro-Russian forces that tried to um, start like uh, a violent uh, confrontation, because actually there were people like um, Igor Strelkov, Girkin, uh, who who is like a former Russian special services uh, guy uh, with uh, a monarchist worldview uh, from these white guards. Um, nostalgia and so on. And he was a, a very uh, important uh, player in starting the, the military escalation in 2014 in, in Donbass, because he was his unit made of uh, Russian so-called volunteers uh, from, from Russia itself. They uh, faced a local city, Slavyansk, and uh, then they um, it started a, um, this uh, military confrontation with the Ukrainian state. So uh, we could say that uh, there were lots of uh, um, lots of uh, wrong steps from the, the both sides. At the same time, you you had uh, a clear intention of uh, Russia and some Russian nationals to stir up a, a real conflict there, and they weren't uh, going to. Actually, for many of these people, the people in Kremlin and people like this adventurer Strelkov, they weren't caring about uh, the population of Donbass. They were caring about some uh, their own imperialist ambitions, and this, this it was uh, so easy for them to to sacrifice the lives of of, uh, of the local population. And uh, now we can say that even. Uh, that uh, like really this this conflict it it, it led to a, a cleavage between um, that part of Donbass that is now uh, controlled by uh, this pro-Russian probably I'll uh, go back on their nature of these uh, so-called republics and the other part is controlled by uh, like the Ukrainian authorities because. Uh, um, Again, in these uh, eastern uh, Ukrainian cities that were under Ukrainian control until they were occupied, uh, like in, in these months, like in this year, um, you could see that there is like almost complete rejection of, of, the, um, of the Russian invaders and uh, the people the local people who are primarily Russian speaking, who are uh, who used to be used to vote primarily for the parties that are deemed as Russian, uh, they are the same people who are now going on the streets, standing up to these Russian armed people, armed uh, soldiers, and saying, "We were not inviting you here. Uh, this is our our city. This is our land, and you are the occupiers." 
go back. Uh, you, you say that you are liberating us, but actually we see you as fascists. You brought uh, more war to us. And the tragedy is that probably in, in these days, in, in this, we had like less, less than a month of, uh, of, of this war now, that especially in, in Donetsk region, the same Donetsk region, when you have like the city of uh, Mariupol, probably the number of civilian casualties is bigger than it was uh, throughout all these eight years of uh, this protracted war um, in, in the Donbass. So, uh, and this is a result of a unilateral decision made by, um, by the Russian leadership to, to steer a full-scale invasion um, against Ukraine. So, I, I, I don't want I don't want to minimize what I think is not just a violation of international law, this invasion of Ukraine are war crimes. I don't want to minimize that. But that being said, shouldn't have Ukraine uh, have allowed a referendum in Donbass and let the people decide what they what their fate will be? And, uh, yeah, so now let's let's get to, for instance, the issue of Minsk agreements. Yeah, so Minsk agreements have been violated again, by both sides, because uh, they were written in a way that uh, each side was um, um, uh, somehow, um, it was reading in its own way. So uh, for instance, there was a big dispute whether uh, the new elections, this special status for the Donbass, it is some kind of autonomy, uh, whether it has to be inducted after the um, control over uh, the border will be uh, resumed uh, by Ukraine or by some kind of um, uh, international skipping force or, or something like else that uh, the sides will agree. Or they first we have elections and then only we have like, the um, uh, returning of the con uh, this control. And again, there were uh, arguments on both sides. And um, for instance, that uh, we cannot uh, have like free and fair elections in this um, so-called People's Republics. Because again, if we speak about this uh, Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics, they were um, in a way, uh, uh, Actually, some kind of um, uh, top-down military dictatorships. Uh, uh, they, they didn't allow any kind of independent uh, activity, independent uh, organizations, in uh, trade unions, uh, even the political parties that they sanctioned. There were some uh, political groups that had like no again no 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 real entities, uh, and the elections were again. Um, just uh, what they claim to be as an election, it was just uh, made off. So it was like complete falsification. So there was no, uh, even, even if we speak about the problems that we have with the electoral process here, and even with, uh, with Russia, still in Russia, you have some controlled, no controlled, but um, parties that are not, not ruling, that are like oppositional. And in this, um, regions of uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, like there was even no kind of emulation of a proper political process. And uh, again, uh, the 
uh, how how the current leadership uh, of, of these uh, so-called republics got into power through again just another military coup so uh, they had killed uh, the previous leader in Donetsk and uh, somehow uh, chased off uh, the leader in Luhansk and installed like new people who are directly members of the ruling party in Russia the united russia and uh, well people who again have uh, no, no 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 reputation again uh, among like local people so uh, the problem yes they were arguing that this is not we cannot have like real elections there until we we have this kind of like uh, russian military control over over these uh, lands so this was what ukraine was arguing and russia was arguing but if we like close the borders and grant it back to, to Ukraine, then Ukraine will do some kind of, uh, I don't know, cleansing and so on. So uh, again, both sides were, um, weren't were really into... And, and wasn't, given the strength of the far right in Ukraine and the even armed far right, and, and I'm, if I understand it correctly, with a certain strength in the armed forces, uh, wasn't that fear of some kind of cleansing of Donbass uh, has had some merit so um uh, i i will uh, finish with with uh, with this one so yeah actually uh while ukrainian side was uh clearly sabotaging some parts of the political agreement of minsk uh, then uh, the russian side was uh like doing lots of uh and pro-russian side doing lots of violations of the um security part of the minsk agreements and they uh, didn't even uh get to uh like open and um militarize uh what was prescribed by these agreements um all all all, all the uh, the parts of the um this uh front but how it's called this line of um so yeah again it was uh it were lots of violations from both sides, and ultimately, it was the Russian side that completely destroyed Minsk by acknowledging these republics prior to the invasion. And now, to get to the issue of the far right, right but hang on, let me just say, yeah. I'm, I got to give the counter argument here. They're saying Minsk was already dead by that point. Minsk wasn't dead at that point, and um, I think that uh, actually there was a way to. Uh, um, many, many, many thought that actually. Uh, what what uh, what was this Russia's uh, power building prior to the invasion? That uh, many people argued that actually it's some kind of uh, pressure to to get uh, some concessions and then to to have some negotiations. But ultimately, when everyone was thinking that okay, now now they will have some negotiations, then Russia went on full scale uh, invasion. So. Um, Again, it, 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 it seems as, as no rational uh, decision that could really pressure for... for okay, for another, this. let me follow up. And again, I'm going to keep saying this because I'm pushing you on issues of what Ukraine could have done, and I don't in any way want to mitigate the crimes and horror of this invasion. But there were voices in Ukraine uh, leading up to the invasion uh, when the force Russian forces started gathering there were a lot significant voices in Ukraine saying take NATO off the table declare neutrality now um, there is 
the, the truth is, as far as I understand the politics of NATO, uh, yes, there's that Bucharest agreement, and yes, uh, but I think many NATO countries have made it clear that decades before Ukraine would ever be allowed into NATO, meaning probably never, why didn't Zelensky just declare neutrality before the invasion? Um, I, I don't think that it was really a question about NATO. Well, actually, uh, Zelensky, uh, it was part of his political um, platform that he will do a referendum on, on such issues including this NATO membership. Though he uh, inherited uh, from the previous president, Proshenko, who had already uh, under his leadership, uh, this membership in NATO, it was uh, engraved in the constitution. So in some amendments that Ukraine is aspiring for Euro-Atlantic integration and so on. Uh, but actually, uh, I think that it, it could be uh, easily become a part of uh, some kind of deal if Russian leadership did really want to uh, contact with Zelensky. Because Zelensky, uh, he, for two years, he was trying to get a personal, uh, on the presidential level, a personal negotiations with Putin, and uh, probably to discuss these questions as well. However, uh, it wasn't, uh, he had no chance um, because uh, the, the Russian side said that we, we are not going to speak with you, we are going to speak only with Washington. And again, this is kind of some kind of very uh, imperial thinking that big, big uh, grand uh, imperial powers have to decide the, the fate of, of smaller ones. Um, and I, I don't think that really Zelensky was really sticking to this issue of NATO membership and now, is uh, clearly also saying that we understand, we understood back then, and we understand now that many in, in NATO member states, they don't want Ukraine in. So we can speak, we can negotiate on this issue. But uh, wh why don't you uh, go on, on these direct negotiations? Again, so um, I, I wouldn't say that it was so pressuring. I, I can just uh, get back to this issue of the far right. Uh, that you put this question. Um, and uh, well, again, the, the far right is the pressuring issue for, for Ukraine. Um, and we have like two dominant narratives, uh, both of which are too simplistic. So first one is, uh, um, like, uh, if you read Western scholars, usually they are not paying the um, importance or the influence of the far right in Ukraine. And they are rightly uh, pointing out that the electorally, they are very big. So electorally, the coalition of the major far right groups um, has just like 2% uh, on election, like the, the last parliamentary elections and maybe a percent and a half at the presidential election. Uh, so they're very they're very weak electorally. So they are weak electorally, as they have no popularity among uh, the population. So um, actually, the population is rejecting this kind of uh, very nationalist rhetorics, and it's again uh, quite saying that uh, uh, the, the previous presidential elections, when the incumbent president Poroshenko was defeated, uh, he was running on a increasingly national, nationalist conservative uh, platform. 
while Zelensky, he was actually an empty signifier. He had no clear program at all, but he was perceived as uh, some kind of uniting figure who comes from this city of Kraviri, from um, a family of Soviet uh, intelligentsia, um, um, some rather cosmopolitan figure, Russian speaking, um, who has this message of uniting and inclusive uh, vision of Ukraine instead of some kind of these nationalist uh, slogans of Poroshenko that were army, language, and face. Yeah, so this was his triad in the elections. While uh, Zelensky was really speaking about uh, like uniting all people, including bringing peace uh, to Donbas. And actually, uh, after his election, um, the ceasefire in, in Donbas was uh, much more effective. So there were uh, uh, much less uh, violations of the ceasefire and much less casualties, um, you could say. And uh, actually, he had this mandate from the people to try and force some kind of peace um, uh, deal on this. So, um, and we, here we have the, 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 the issue of the far right. So when they are done playing them, they uh, say only about the electoral results. But we understand that uh, the real power of the far right here is not in their elections. Yes, it's in, in uh, their armed resource. Because yeah, in countries like France, when some kind of Le Pen or Zemmour can get, uh, get 20% and 30% uh, of, of, of votes, or in Italy with Salvini and Liga or uh, some alternative for, uh, for Deutschland and so on. These far-right parties, they have no military wings. They obviously have no um, armed groups. Uh, but here we come to the, another view that paints uh, Ukraine as something uh, like synonymous to, to fascism. Like all Ukrainians are fascists. And uh, the only thing you, you know about Ukraine is Azov Battalion. The way is uh, for for many years not no more a battalion but a regiment. Uh, by the way, in the not in the army, but in the Ministry of Interior, the National Guard, uh, and um, many again spoke about this link between um, the original uh, leader of Azov Battalion, that was uh, Belyatsky, uh, who comes who hails from like real uh, neo-Nazi. Um, Grupo School, a very small organization, uh, and uh, with uh, his link to the former Minister of Interior, uh, Avakov. Um, so, um, yes, uh, concentrating just on this issue. So uh, I would say that, yes, we have, we have this uh, huge challenge, how to, how to deal with, with the existence of this um, uh, armed group um and uh, now and how strong are they, how strong are they in the military uh so so they have uh, i would say that azov and uh, uh, probably connected with some groups like uh, it was called uh, national uh, like national militia nacionalne drużyny so it's several thousand people uh with uh, with weapons so uh Compared to the entire entirety of Ukrainian armed forces, they are again only a, a small faction, but they have also this kind of, uh, well, um, again, mythology 
that uh, um, surround them that they were so so efficient as uh, defenders of Mariupol and so on and so on. So uh, this this of course boosted their legitimacy, and um, this, for instance, made it not so easy to uh, if if if. Uh, the political leadership had enough political will, for instance, to say we have to disband this battalion or regiment at this point because uh, it's um, it's dangerous for the uh, citizens of Ukraine and it's again uh, dangerous for the public image of Ukraine. It it was clear, though many many politicians here seemed like completely blind and uh, um, to 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 this problem, um, but. Uh, Internationally, everyone was speaking about this this problem. Uh, so, uh, in order to have somehow disarm it and probably disperse it, it wouldn't be so so easy as well. And now, with this so-called denazification uh, uh, intervention by Russia, it will be it would be even less uh, possible because uh, it gave them uh, new justification. Their existence and uh, new legitimacy. The, any, any society, the majority of people don't want to wage war. It, it's this tiny group of the far right who are really eager for war, who, who dream about, I don't know, getting to Valhalla and so on, and there's some, some kind of uh, specific mindset. Uh, um, and they see any war as an opportunity. And you could see that it was not just this um, the Azov battalion and some splits from it uh, that benefited on this war, but also other far-right groups, both uh, uh, on Ukrainian and on Russian side. So you could see that many uh, international far-rights, they, they, they came to, uh, to the war in Donbass or, and some training camps again on both sides uh, as, as an opportunity, yes, to, to take part in a war and to get, get some training. So you had a number of, um, uh, for instance, uh, Scandinavian or uh, Croatian far right coming to Azov and you had uh, Serbian and again Scandinavian and uh, also some other European far right coming to, to fight for uh, the separatist side, the pro-Russian side. And there were, again, you mentioned that there were some Russian left who went to, um, how they say, defend Donbas. And there, there is a lot of mythology, for instance, uh, around one of these warlords um, in, in Luhansk, uh, Mazgavoy, um, uh, that he, he had uh, under his command, there was even a unit uh, with, with communists and so on. But under the same his command, there was a unit of far right, like the, the Russian neo-Nazis from, from Rusic and so on. And uh, you have, uh, of course, lots of uh, far right among different mercenaries and different, uh, like this Wagner group, the, the Russian, um, Russian government affiliated. So uh, you, if, if you see the tattoos on some Azov and some Wagner uh, um, uh, militant, so it, it would be pretty the same. So th these are people- well, who One on the, the, one far on the right. Ukrainian right and one on the Russian right. Yeah, and, and they, are, they are really parasiting on, the, on this war and parasiting on the, the the, the the tragedy of, of, of enormous uh, number of people 
while these people see this as an opportunity. And I'm afraid that uh, with this invasion, we, we got, uh, of course, that all nationalist uh, hysteria throughout the region, it will only increase. It's increasing here, of course, as like any, any war brings this. It increases in Russia. And you could, uh, again, you even see Russian, uh, like, again, literal Nazis doing some that uh, events with, with all, all this stuff, like uh, the Russian National Unity, the neo-Nazi neo group. And uh, lots of, of course, dehumanization talks. And uh, um, again, uh, we, we, we were brought to a, an even more dangerous situation now. And uh, uh, I would say that um, uh, what was what was the, the opportunity to um, so the majority of the Ukrainian society, including the majority in the Ukrainian armed forces, again, if you listened to um, the current commander of Ukrainian army, Zaluzhny, he was uh, on this previous month. Uh, going to up to this invasion, he was constantly uh, making uh, the point that in no case Ukraine should invade Donbass and try to uh, reintegrate it, reintegrate it in military way. So uh, that there is the only option is some kind of uh, a peaceful and civic solution. Um, so I would say that the majority of, of, of the people, they could stop uh, these far-right groups uh, from uh, doing some uh, atrocities. Uh, but in the case when you have another escalation and uh, another uh, confrontational, more and more confrontational situation, this amplifies the voices of the extreme and uh, it uh, really waters down the voices of the uh, reasonable majority. All right, so we're going to do a part two of this interview where we'll talk more about uh, the role of the United States and NATO, uh, NATO expansion, and the bigger picture of uh, the geopolitics and this, this moment and the crisis of global capitalism, because that's really what this fundamentally is about. And I don't think we should ever stop talking about how this is the uh, manifestation of uh, I, what I would say is sort of an uneven development of capitalist mm -hmm. countries, which is precisely what happened before World War II. Uh, I, I, I'll sort of use this in my introduction, but I'll just tease it a little bit now. You can't expect a country the size of Russia, and when I say you, I mean the United States, not to have regional power, to think that a country that size is just going to play ball and not be a regional power uh, is, is, is ridiculous. On the other hand, if you like to sell arms, it's pretty good to try to stop them from being a regional power and, and for many other reasons. None of that justifies the invasion. That being said, there's a lot of uh, onus on uh, US policy within the context of how global capitalism works. So we're gonna talk about that in part two. Uh, Dennis, thanks very much and thank to everybody watching. Uh, on the analysis.news.